Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Welcome to another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Excellent! With your host, Brad Allen. Well, isn't that extra special? Recorded live at Bay Area Studios. Join Brett each week as he interviews celebrities, influencers, authors, high-level entrepreneurs, and much more. At the open mic, no topic is off limits. Giddy up. And you never know who may stop by. Now, here's your host, Brett Allen. What's up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. It's your host, Brett Allen. Man, oh man, do we have a great episode for you today. So today we're talking to Michael Fishman of The Connors and Roseanne. He's also a producer, a director, a writer. He's got his own production company and just a whole myriad of things. This is a fun conversation. And then Friday, Christmas Day on the podcast, we have Joel McHale. We've been promoting this on social media and we are excited for you to check this interview out. I don't think I've ever laughed as hard as I did in an interview than I did with him. He is quick and sharp-witted, and uh, I'm excited for you to check it out. But in the meantime, uh, Michael Fishman, he was just so cool, and I think you're going to really love this episode. Be sure to check out all the other episodes at theopenmicpodcast.show. Give us a shout-out, subscribe, and listen to us on iTunes. Give us a kind rating and review. Uh, it really means a lot. Michael Fishman, welcome into the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. Well, I am excited to talk to you. And for those just now tuning in, we're talking to Michael Fishman, actor, director, producer, writer, podcaster, YouTube creator. I mean, good Lord, you do it all. So how do you find time to do all the things that you do and still manage to balance your life and your TV and and all of that? I, I try not to sleep. No, uh, it's kind of become that thing. I, I've always been this way. I think, um, in addition to all the professional stuff I do, I've been a dad for you know 21 years, and I coach kids on, on the off days. So balancing everything, I think that's what I always did as a kid growing up, working in this business. So now, as a writer, director, producer, it, it, what I really have to do is sometimes just kind of say to people, "Okay, hold on, I got to change hats," and, and this is the different part of me asking you, like. You know, as a producer, I spent most of this week going over contracts for projects. And I'm like, I hate this part from the standpoint of like, I have to be very formal with you right now. And I have to really lay out, but I believe in transparency is a big deal for me and and making sure that people understand. So for me, it's clear communication, great collaboration and inclusion. Those are kind of what I, what I do on the production side of things. Yeah. And I think as someone like yourself, who is a well-known person and people want to work with you, I imagine that you have to be, you have to set up boundaries with people, right? Because they might come at you in a different way as like, oh, this is the kid from this or, you know, the person from that. And how do you find yourself when you're in those situations, learning to sort of, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is like, how do you maintain that professionalism? Because I can imagine it might be a bit of a challenge sometimes depending on the situation. Do you find that to be true? It can be. I think it depends on the situation. Um, when I first meet people, there's there's kind of their preconceived notion of the character they know me best as playing DJ, right? And he's very kind of quiet, uh, a little goofy, and very passive. And me, you know, I grew up coming out of a military family and, and – very organized and structured. So like the producer part of me 
is very formal. And so I have to hold that part. Like when we're doing contracts, one of my writing partners and, and all these things, like I have a team of, of lawyers and all these people like, but I read every contract, I read every word. So I'm going to go over it with you line by line and make sure you know, because like I said, I want to be transparent. Then the creative side of me, that's where I'm fun, right? Like that's where the joy comes out. And then the directing side is I have to be very analytical from, it's like a combination of the two. Creatively, it's a vision, but from a technical standpoint, I got to be able to get the shots we need. I have to have a framework of what kind of time frame we're working at because each day has to, I got to make the day as the director and make sure we get the footage we need. So you kind of break them up. And then as an actor, kind of that's my time to just release and just be and yourself. Play. Yeah. Well, to be this character in an imagined world, I think. And then the beauty is when I step away from all that, bits and pieces of me are in everything. And I think I, I do them authentic to myself. I think that's the thing. If people watch like my Instagram, for example, you get a really authentic version of who I am because I, I don't want to have a persona. It's too many things that, especially if I'm going to do all these different jobs, that would be too many personas to have. And I think that's where people get themselves in trouble is they build themselves a persona and then they have to live up to it. And that's a nightmare. Right. You wind up on the cover of some magazine as a child actor who you picked a headline and you have done a fantastic job. I don't want to get into all of that of, of not going down that road. I want to talk about something that you do that I find very interesting and that a lot of celebrities do this, but not to the degree that you do. And that is really connecting with your fans and your followers on Instagram. You are, as you mentioned yourself, posting videos, pictures, being transparent. How easy is that for you to do? And do you feel like when you do that, that you are opening yourself up? And I'm just asking, generally speaking, of people maybe trying to take advantage of that, or you just are the type of person like, I'm going to do this, and I just want people to know who I am and just sort of let the cards fall where they may, if that makes any sense. Oh, totally, it totally does, Brett. And for me, it started really organically. I have always engaged in social media. I believe that social media should be social. Uh, we have access to the greatest minds in our world, and I'm not claiming to be one of them. I'm just saying you have access to you know, physicists and writers and, and creative people, and then also just people who have built businesses and, and are creating the things that are going to change this world in the future. And a lot of them are looking for information or connecting with people, but the communication has been kind of stunted. And in my field, you know, a lot of times people feel like that they have a connection to you, but they don't get to really see the real version, like I said. And right. people have these, you know, carefully crafted personas based on a PR team or somebody else's perception of, well, this will get you this many likes and this will get you this many clicks. And I, Honestly, I, you know, especially at this phase in my life, I, I really just wanted to be open and honest with people. So it started as me almost like leaving messages. And it sounds funny is I'm super confident in what I'm doing and how I go about it. It's just sometimes there's the question of like, I hope this is touching and reaching people, right? Like you leave a message and I'm a firm believer. Don't just leave your highlight reel like most people use social media for. But when you're struggling. You know, um, I've lost family members this year and I have struggled with stuff. And there's projects that I was super excited about that I thought, okay, here we go. And then they start to fall apart and other ones show up. 
so to share that authentically, and then what happened is kind of Mondays and Thursdays, I've been doing these, you know, Mondays mental health, because a lot of people are struggling this year, particularly with COVID mm-hmm. and, and mental health and all that stuff. And I was getting all these messages from people privately. So I kind of decided, okay, I, I would communicate that way. And people blew me away, right? Like uh, they come on and they share their lives. They share really personal, kind messages. And it's a kind community. And so I think people who know me know I try to be strong, calm, and kind. And so what you get is a really vulnerable look. You know, Thursdays is kind of Thursday thoughts. It's kind of open to whatever we want. And I literally, I take random people and every time I hit the yes include button in the back of my mind I'm like this could be the one like this this, this could really undo your whole career because you have no idea what they're going to say right right but there's also an authenticity of of if I have to I can always say goodbye um but I've met some unbelievable people and their kindness for each other you know we've dealt with domestic violence and, and surviving domestic violence and sexual abuse and um anxiety, depression, uh, uh, surviving what could have been terminal illnesses and all of these things, all of, you know, and at the same time, what I always tell people is, look, I'm not qualified to give you life advice. I don't play a doctor. I don't even play one on TV at the current time. So I'm not qualified (laughs) in any way, shape or form, but I will be authentic with you. And I do listen and I do legitimately care about what's going on. And I remember people's stories. I mean, I, I remember by name, you know, Sam and her husband who came on uh, like two weeks ago, who just came on last night to give me an update. They're this beautiful couple who she left her job because she was miserable at it. And it was terrible for a couple of months. And she actually had had an exchange with me about not knowing if she was going to be able to afford Christmas. And then lo and behold, a month ago, she gets a job and now she's like on fire. Her wow. husband got promoted. Like, and, and I'm watching people's lives grow. And, and I've just always had a firm belief in this is uh, having a public job. You get to impact people and you get to choose how you impact people. So if you don't do something positive with this stage, then you're wasting your time. Yes. And I think you have something unique as an actor and performer, a talent, because you have essentially garnered a few different generations of people I'm 46, so I remember watching your show the first time and watching you grow up on television. And I'm sure you hear this all the time, but really, I connected with that show in a very special way because we were in similar situations and then, you know, life became better and so to speak. And now you have captured another generation and and really a part of something historically and iconically that has really stood the test of time. And so when you have fans that you connect with on social media, I think that they have this gateway to you is the best way I can describe it to kind of just share. You're very honest on social media. I remember your SUV was in an accident and you posted that on your social. I don't know a lot of celebrities that would do that and just kind of go here, crap happens, you know, and um, I'm like, this guy is real and, and honest and transparent. And it wasn't just an accident. Like, my car was totaled. Yeah. And I was sideswiped by somebody who was drunk, who did a hit and run, since spinning through traffic. And then I got T-boned right in my driver's door. And the fact that I walked away from that 
is pretty miraculous, but also no. like sharing people. Hey, look, realize we have limited time and you don't know because anything could happen, but also try to be grateful, you know, like, and that's the thing that car jokingly people give me a hard time about it, but that car was over 20 years old. I raised two kids, countless kids. I coached passed through that vehicle, multiple pets, it had over 300,000 miles and it wasn't because I just was saving it and I, I could, because every time I went to go invest in something else, because this is the part people don't understand about my life is I worked on a television show and people assume you got rich and that not wasn't so my case. all the time. Right. And, and that's okay. Cause in my case, I always tell people that's the best thing that happened to me was not becoming super independently wealthy because it made me have to work. And I, I've worked in factories and I've worked in warehouses and I've worked construction and worked basic jobs. And every time I got ready to buy a new car, something would happen, which I, everybody at home probably can relate to is you go to make this new investment or you save up and then something happens with the kids or you get this bill you didn't anticipate or the refrigerator breaks, your washer and dryer are toast. Like, so that car really transitioned through the majority of my adult life. And now I'm in a place where I'm, launching all these other projects and being a writer and being a producer and being a director. So I've been investing in future projects. <laughs> so it was kind of the last vestige or remnants of kind of <laughs> the, the early part of my adult life. And it was like, okay, I guess you're going into a transition whether you like it or not. I know. Right now there's like, well, it's too late. Either you, you didn't want to do it or not. I find that so interesting. I want to talk about the director and producer and actress side of you. Let's start with an actor. Obviously, we know you from Roseanne and the Connors, but you've done other projects. One of the films that you did that I think is underrated, but so amazing, Undrafted. Something so cool. And just, and if people haven't seen this movie, I think you need to watch it because it really gives a brutal and honest perspective on the sports industry and kind of all of this other type of thing. But when you're choosing projects to work on outside of obvious, the obvious thing, what are some of the considerations that you take into your mind and your heart to decide this is something that I want to do or I want to be a part of? Well, that project in particular came by in the most organic way possible. A buddy of mine that we'd work crew stuff together literally called me and said, hey, I'm building a set here. They're auditioning baseball players for this baseball movie. You need to be here. And I'm like, I don't, I go, what do you mean? And he goes, listen, he goes, drop what you're doing. You have to get here in the next hour and a half because that's how long they're going. And I went, okay. And I got in the car, drove up there, threw on some baseball clothes, went up, played ball. And then afterwards, they're like, wow, you played pretty good ball. And then we started talking about the acting part. Okay. And my role in that was pretty small, but I'm the bad guy pitcher on the opposing team. So it was a lot of baseball and it was a great opportunity. So I was drawn to the opportunity to do a baseball film, but I was drawn to, there's this amazing group of guys, really talented guys. And, and, you know, Joseph, who was doing the directing, who people know him from the kid from Jurassic Park, that was his first film. So to have known each other a little bit and passing through the years and then to get to be part of that process. And then Philip Winchester and, and Manny Montana and all of these guys that I love that group of people. So I was all in and I didn't care how many lines or what it was. I was about being part of a project and lifting a project that may be under the radar, but I think we did good work and that's oh, yeah. the core, right? Like, and it was different because the message is 
for a lot of those guys, it's almost like the last time they're going to really play play. And one guy's kind of making, has a chance to potentially make it out. And it was based on his brother's real life story. Mm-hmm. And so those stories also having been for 20 years, having coached kids and 10 years as a high school coach, man, I've known a lot of players along the way. So the story resonated with me. So all of those things come into play for me. I want to tell authentic stories that move or touch people. It's not necessarily just the commercial part of things, you know, that that's great if it, it makes money or whatever, but I think we did good work there. I think that film really has some, some moments that are amazing. Uh, Don, who is the guy who uh, does the collision at home plate, he and I are getting ready to, to do another production. So there's all these little pieces. I believe in synchronicity. I believe you meet people that you're supposed to meet as long as you're open to it and people can teach you. Everybody's teaching me something every day. hundred percent. And so the same stands too, as far as directing and producing, you want to create projects that are authentic, organic, and sort of going in this direction of not necessarily the commercial side of things and that sort of thing, right? Have you ever had moments where you've been attached to things and you're like, I don't know if I should have done this and uh, oh crap, or are you pretty confident about everything that you go into uh, when it comes to any kind of project that you choose to be a part of? Well, it's going to sound really kind of arrogant a little bit, but I'm kind of the luckiest person in the world because every time I've been attached to something that I had any question about, either the project didn't happen or something happened that brought me away from the project in a very amicable way. I've never walked off of anything. You know, the only reason I would ever, I love what we get to do, whether it be write, direct, produce, and as an actor, the only reason I'm walking away usually is if, if there's, if people aren't being treated right, if there's a problem with representation or there's not inclusion, if there's bias on set, I won't be silent. So that's one area where if you ever see me walk away from something, you know, something probably happened. But for me, projects are about telling authentic stories. And I think the commercial part of this business takes care of itself. If you tell a good story, if you share real things and you make people feel and you're part of something, the other part kind of takes care of itself because we lose kind of the art if you chase the money. Yeah, yeah. I think if you get into it just to get rich or get famous, I don't think that would satisfy you, even though that might happen to some people. I think the percentage, well, first of all, the percentage of people who go to Hollywood, so to speak, you know, uh, to use a reference from due date, (laughs) you know, who go to Hollywood to get discovered, I think is quite small. And it's crazy. The numbers are between six to 8,000 people come here every month and the average stay is about six months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've known people who have gone out to try and make it and they've had producers direct, or I'm sorry, they've had agents, they've been with some big names out there, um, you know, and publicists, they get the whole deal and they live in West Hollywood and they try and do it and they audition. And I think now ubering and lyft is kind of the replacement for working as a waiter in a restaurant doordash postmates whatever and then you're going out on auditions right assuming that things are healthy and normal in our country but the point is is that it's very small and so to have gotten what you've gotten is a big deal and you sort of elude and ooze that thankfulness which i think is very cool and makes you likable for people to want to continue to work with you or get invited back to do a project that you had once done before. It's a big deal. And 
And again, I think people underestimate kind of touching back on the socioeconomic status of a lot of actors. People don't get, even the ones that are doing super well, so to speak, they still have people on their payroll and people that they have to take care of, you know? And so it's like, it's not all the glitz and glamour. I think that's even a small percentage of people who you think I've talked to hundreds of celebrities and I will tell you, it's not all, it's not always glitz and glory, right? Like people have to really work hard. No. And, and you have to do the math, right? Like I always tell people, depending on the agent it could be anywhere from 10 to 15%. That's off the top. If you have a manager, that's probably another 15 or 20% right off the top. Now do the math there. You know, you're, you're above 25% minimum, right? You could be as high as 30 or 40%. Add in a publicist, add in a legal team if you need one, add in kind of all of the other side things, a, a stylist, especially for female performers, you know, having a stylist because you can't wear the same clothes to things. And, and, you know, I can get away with wearing a suit more than once, but, you know, uh, and one of my counterparts can't wear the same dress to two events. Like you just can't get away with that. So the money goes fast, hair, makeup, all these things for, for a lot of different people. But you got to remember, like I do Fish's call sheet where I dive behind the scenes of people on the, on the crew. And like I talked to one of them was uh, Jesse uh, Martinez and he does background work and was trying to be a stand-in, which is the actors who help set right. up the shots. Well, he talked about, and we got into, because it's important, the economics is the most actors are just trying to get to insurance. That insurance level is, I think, 18 for the first level and 30 for the highest level. That means the average working actor is somewhere close to that 18 to 30 range, $1,000 a year. That's not going to make you wealthy, and it's certainly not a lot of money living out in a place like Southern California. <laughs> no, and our... <laughs> California is, I mean, we are just in a really bad place. Anyway, Fishman's call sheet. This is really cool. So I used to live in New Mexico and I did a lot of background work on films, TV shows. I got to do some stand-in work and that's quite a pay bump from being an extra to being a stand-in. Almost a difference of like $10, $15. And then if you get a permanent stand-in job, even better. And then if you become the stand-in, for an actor and you travel and follow them from show to show, which doesn't happen quite often, but it does. I mean, then you get into this relationship with the actor. They might be paying you more just to kind of travel and that sort of thing. This is a really cool thing because Fishman's call sheet sort of pulls the curtain back of Hollywood, the Mysteriama of your world, which people like, because we don't know what that's like outside of an interview like this, where we get to talk to you and go, Hey, tell us about this. How did that project come about and what is your passion about that? What made you go, I want to do something and let people see how the sausage is made, so to speak? Well, for me, I've, I've always had a special relationship with the crew. Uh, I, for me, I, I'm not a big hierarchy person. I, I, and I, after I worked as an actor, I went to the crew side and I've held almost every job in this business you can have outside of hair and makeup, which would be a disaster for everybody. <laughs> And, and costumes, I never did costumes. And again, I barely can dress myself. So that would have been a disaster too. So, but I have done camera work and set building. And I've been, you know, I've been a grip. I've worked the electrical. I've run cable for miles and miles. And then, you know, I even worked in the shop at ACDC for a little while to move towards working as an electrician in the business. Because all the guys I knew said, if you really want to be taken seriously, you got to go through the shop and basically get paid nothing. and 
work on the equipment and learn the hard way. Nobody wanted to give it to me, that, which is a gift in my life. I, I want to earn it. So, you know, my, my Emmy nomination is for production design and being props and set dressing, not from all the years of acting. So I, I bring, and it's a gift because I bring it to the directing side and I bring it to the producing side of having worked in all these departments, knowing how many real artists are in our field, but most people never see them. So Fish's yeah. Call Sheet started over the pandemic. Um, all of my crew members, you know, they work week to week, paycheck to paycheck, and they were all stuck at home. And I kept talking to them and they were heartbroken and they, they felt like they weren't useful and they didn't know if they were going to be able to go back. And I was like, you guys all have these amazing stories and you're such amazing people. And I, I was like, we should be celebrating this and sharing it with the world. And while you're all, normally you're working 15, 16 hour days, you're, there's no time. Right now you're home, let me get some of your stories. So it started by doing interviews with a few people I knew who then recommended me to people that I'd never met. And, you know, whether it be, we have directors and editors, uh, prop guys, set dressing, and the beautiful part, a location manager is the one I'm editing now. What you see is how the artistic portions that go into the world that you kind of take for granted behind the actors. And as an actor, I think I've always been uniquely aware I love what I do and, and I'm out front and people see me, right? But if I don't have a lighting group, then I'm a guy in the dark no one can see. If you can't hear me because the sound's not here, you have no idea what I'm saying. If there's no props, then I'm a guy standing empty handed. And so all of these things are part of this magic. And I felt like, and I still feel like, those people don't get enough credit. Writers, Agreed. producers. Like, and so for me, it's kind of my quiet way. The hardest part is getting them to talk because they're not public people and they're not used to doing an interview or talking about themselves. So getting them to kind of open up and share behind the curtain and it helps because they've known, a lot of them have known me so long, but also because I can kind of connect with them and reach in and ask about things that somebody who's never experienced that job wouldn't know. And so I love sharing it with the world and I hope people see it. I try to share behind the scenes photos or, you know, we've had how the set was designed, like on Roseanne and the Connors. Some of those stories you couldn't get anywhere else. These are one, one person in the world knows this information. So it's beautiful to have it out there and kind of share what people do. Yeah, and we'll put links to that on our show notes when this episode goes up next week. I think it's important for people to get that because if you're on a set, oftentimes there's different classes. There's the background who is usually kept separate from everybody else. And then you get to come on set. I know I can see you grimace, I know. <laughs> but it, it is crazy. It is. It's insane. I've oftentimes always wondered, I could see why on a very small level, like you don't want somebody fanning out over an actor or bugging or getting crazy. Everybody has their processes, whatever, whatever. And you have the actors and then you have the crew. Sometimes they mingle together depending on, on who's who and what's what, but it's very intricate. It's very a big process to get a show up. I did never did a multi-camera sitcom, but I worked on TV shows. And so it takes about a week or so to get one episode up. That's if everybody's on time and there's not something stopping production and actor for getting lines. <laughs> I've seen that a few times, yep. but it happens. You know what I'm saying? Or somebody in props getting creative and doing something and the actors like, why is that person holding a teddy bear? That doesn't make sense. And then there's, it often can have long conversations on setting up a shot 
multi-camera sitcoms. I want to talk about that because you've obviously done it. What we see on a Thursday night or whenever the episode airs, 30 minutes. If you've ever been to a TV taping, I've had the privilege. It can take hours sometimes to get an episode out. You know, if jokes aren't funny, then you, you have writers changing jokes. Um, I've heard some hilarious stories about your show in particular, about how jokes were funny, how they could decide who laughed and what was what. But just from a general perspective, for you, when you are getting ready to do the Connors, what does a typical day look like for you when you're on set and you're, let's say you're, you've directed a couple episodes. Let's talk about that. You directed a couple episodes. How is that for you, especially when you're directing and then you have to move in front of the camera and tell people do this, do that? Like, what is that experience like for you? Well, so multi-camera, I think, for me, I love it. I think there's a, there's a special place in that because you get the live audience. So you get immediate feedback. So I'll get to that because it's kind of at the end of the week. So I'm going to back up when I'm directing. You're usually supposed to get a script usually the week before. So you have a week to kind of prep <laughs> for a few days. That never happens. Nope. Um, I usually get mine like Saturday night and Monday morning. I got to do a, a technical meeting with all of the departments and know what I want from every single department and what's needed. So we have a production meeting Monday morning. Then usually immediately following that, you roll into the table read. Table read is basically the first time all the actors get together and read this script out loud so everybody can kind of hear it and you get your first taste of the rhythm and the dynamic and, and what people, the actor's individual perspective is on this character or this storyline. Then depends on the show. Uh, some shows you immediately go into doing some rehearsal and start putting some of it on your feet. Other shows will take the rest of the day off so they can go rewrite a large portion of the episode, <laughs> but however it works, Tuesday morning you come in and now it's put it on its feet. So now you're talking about blocking, which is all the movement that actors have in a scene, integrating some of the props and starting to get an idea. And then, you know, like we call it as a director, giving an actor like business, like I need this actor to move to the sink. What could be something that would take them to the sink? Okay. They're going to go put dishes away. Washing. <laughs> yeah. Or they're, they're making breakfast for everybody else, right? So they go to the stove, then they're moving. Somebody else has to bring them milk from, say, the fridge and that kind of stuff. So you try to make that as organic as possible. And then I think if you're good as a director, you trust your actor's intuition. Like, you know, John is amazing at kind of having natural reasons to move through a room. So you don't want to squander that gift and kind of like force him into set stuff that you thought of just randomly while you were doing it, right? Right. He'll come up with something where he'll do things with the newspaper that just are authentic to him and to who Dan is that you may not consider. And then at the end of Tuesday, you'll do a run through for the producers and the writers so they can see it on its feet and see what it really starts to look like. Then again, it goes through a big rewrite. Uh, Wednesday, you come in. Now we do the same kind of thing as Tuesday, except at the end of the day, the network all comes in. So you have the network executives, you have someone who's involved in the show, and then you have standards and practices, which in the old days we called them censors, who <laughs> say, you can't use that word, you can't name that brand, you can't, like, this is a problem, that prop doesn't look right because of this, it has to be a different color or a different shape. And so some of the stuff that you've kind of designed says, nope, nope, that's, you're going to have to fix that. So then you roll into Thursday, which is primarily your camera block day. That's where your full crew is there. 
uh, depends if you work. This is if you work a Monday to Friday show. Some shows shoot basically Wednesday to Tuesday. And the reason that they do that in multicam is a lot of the crew members work one show Thursday and Friday, right. and they work another show Monday, Tuesday. And so they film whichever one is your camera block day. In our case, it's Thursday. Thursday, you come in, you put everything on its feet in front of the cameras. You make sure all of your shots work. As a director, I have to have lined up where I want all my shots. That's really where the stand-ins become really valuable is to utilize them to kind of put things on their feet before I bring in the main actors and ask them to really run through it with high energy. To cut. So if, I, if someone's blocking or, or if you're stacked up in a block and all of a sudden now you can't see each other, you know, to get these things worked out so you can see each people and then transition so that you have both again, that's really the technical dance we do. And then also for audio, to make sure that people are in positions that you can cover them for all of their stuff. Because depending on how many people, like in our case, as a family, you might have six, seven, eight, nine people in a room. Oh, you're packed up. Yeah, and getting a mic to each one of those people because we're not wearing them. Um, in single camera, a lot of times you wear a pack, but then there's still a room right. in some way. So that kind of behind the scenes stuff. And then every once in a while on Thursdays, we'll shoot one or two things, usually something that would be real difficult to do in front of an audience. If you like you're outside a, somewhere. or you're Outside, location. In um, a car, whatever. Yeah, in a car, green screen. Um, maybe a scene that has like a million background people where all of the crossing and timing has to be perfect. Right, which can be very challenging. Yeah, and to match them is, is, can be rough, but it's, it, it's what makes it real. And then Friday is, for us, is our tape night with the audience. And so you come in, you kind of run through all of them again. You may film bits and pieces, but for the most part, you film in front of the audience. And this is where, I think this is where our show separates itself, is for us, our audience comes, you might be there for maybe two hours. A lot of times, especially in the old days, we used to see how quick we could run through the whole show. And oh, yeah, I've heard stories. And 90% of what you see, like the joke is in the old days, I think our record was 32 minutes was we filmed a 30 minute television show in 32 minutes and we're done. So we, we don't shoot a lot of stuff two or three times. Unless there's a joke that really doesn't work, we're pretty efficient. You get feedback and our writers usually have an alt already standing by. Where you get into trouble sometimes on, especially newer shows, is their perception of what they think the audience is gonna do and what the audience reaction is different. And you get in and you have these great jokes but they don't resonate with the audience. And that's what I love because audience is a visceral part of what we do. We get instant feedback. We don't have to wait for it to be on TV. So by the time it's on TV, we've heard most of either the love or the complaint kind of before. <laughs> and we have an idea of why. Sometimes you want people to not love a moment because that's what the character's going. And then we film um, traditionally, then you do bows and, and everybody goes home. In my case, I wait for the audience. I usually thank people for coming to the show um, because I, I find that to be so special. And I really think for me, I, I want people to be acknowledged and I want them to have a full experience. And then I usually hang out with my crew members. I meet crew members, families, whoever's there for the night, take some pictures on the couch, make sure people kind of know that they're valued. And then we do the wind down to make sure that everything kind of is complete for that week. And then you go home and in my case, usually that means Saturday morning, I go and coach at, you know, five or six o'clock in the morning. I'm already driving and nice. coaching and, and whatever. And I coach all weekend. And then I'm, my biggest worry on the weekends usually is writing whatever scripts I'm working on or 
for making sure I put on enough sunblock so I don't get sunburned so my hair and makeup team doesn't have to look at me and be like, what are you what doing? Happened, man? <laughs> Why do you have these white circles around your eyes? <laughs> or in this case today, you know, a, a, a mask thing <laughs> or whatever yeah. the case might be. Well, you are the best. I appreciate your time. You have just done so many amazing things. And I, I definitely want the message to get across to our listeners is that, yes, you have been a part of this iconic series. You've been a part of the Connors, Roseanne, and it's just continuing on. I think you mentioned on your social media, you've got a couple more weeks left of shooting, which I'm assuming now you're doing without an audience just yeah. because of the COVID restrictions. And so you left us on a cliffhanger uh, this season and we're excited to see what's next. And, and not just that, but the other projects that you're involved in, Fishman's Call Sheet, all of that, and uh, just the amazing way that you connect with your audience. If people want to follow you or connect with you on social media or just kind of learn more about what you're doing and who you are, Michael, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, the easiest place to reach me is Real M. Fishman. So R-E-E-L M. Fishman, like my last name, pretty much across all social medias, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and send me a message because I actually read them all. I, I, I can't respond to every single one, but I'll tell you, I'll read them and, and I'll see them. And it's not somebody else managing it. Um, Fish's call sheet has its own. It's uh, F-I-S-H-S call sheet, like the thing that we get each day that kind of lays out our schedule. If you have questions there or requests for things you want to see, I always listen and, and try to find people from those departments. And then uh, inclusive media and mutually inclusive media are my production companies. And we're just launching, building, rolling stuff out, pitching stuff to networks and uh, looking at optioning some scripts. And I have a huge documentary coming up sometime once COVID makes it safe to to go that's based on refugees and kind of telling the wow. story of refugees who come to this country. My dad's an immigrant, so it's a really close story for, for me and my heart. Well, thank you, Michael, for your time. It's been an honor chatting with you and you have a safe and an enjoyable holiday season, my friend. Thanks for being a part of the podcast. Thank you too. My best to you, Brett. That brings today's episode to an end. Thanks for choosing to stop by and listen. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend and hitting the subscribe button. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Is it all over, Rock? I guess so. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. <laughs>